Uh, questions? Yeah, Melinda. I've, I've been wondering for a long time, how does, how does the scientist you work for explain all the um, discoveries by science of like Cro-Magnon Man, you know, uh-huh. the things that have been frozen in, and, and the dating of um, bones and things like that. Okay. You know, that they say it's like 10 billion years old or whatever. What do the scientists say? Okay. <laughs> and then... But, um, you know, when they, they say it's a, ma- it's a pre-human, humanoid kind of a person. Uh-huh. Um, when, when, how do they explain that? Okay, so are you specifically asking me about, about the concept of hominids? Is that the focus yeah. of your question? Not all of science. Right. We're just focused on one thing. Yeah, I'm going to – I've got – I can crack all of science. You know, that's like a – what 140 characters I can get that down yeah uh (laughs) yeah so I work at a ministry called reasons to believe and we're a a science faith integration ministry so a large part of what we are I like to say is that we are missionaries to scientists skeptics and atheists that's our people group so you know we're not going to Africa to minister to people in the Congo you know our people group are the most hardcore scientists, skeptics, and atheists. That's who um, many churches don't know how to minister to those people. And so we as a parachurch organization have that as a specialty of who we minister to. So we try to bring the gospel to them in a language that they can understand, which is an evidence-based approach to faith. And that's kind of how we try to present the gospel to them. So one of our foundational ideas is that wherever God has revealed something, it ought to be in harmony with his other revelations. Okay, so just as we say the Bible uh, wouldn't contradict itself, we would say that God has also revealed himself through the record of nature. And that should not contradict the Bible either. So God has revealed himself two ways. He's revealed himself... Through God's word and his world. So God's revealed himself two ways. And we ought to expect harmony that that both flow from God. And so they ought not to contradict one another. Okay. Now, there are some things, however, that only God's word talk about. For example, uh, the cross. Salvation, the resurrection, um, these are things that God's word reveals, okay? Now, in God's world, there's things that are not in the Bible. For example, the existence of atoms. There's nothing about atoms or the periodic table in the Bible. Are you with me? But we don't doubt that these things are real. We use other means of verification to look at that these things are, are real, okay? So these things can be real over here. These things can be real over here. And they come from two different sources, if you will. All right, now, there are some topics that both reveal. Now, like, for example, that the concept that the universe has a beginning, is a concept that is replete in scripture, that the universe is not eternal. God is eternal, 
but creation is not eternal, right? So the, the idea that the universe has a beginning is an area where the two revelations overlap one another, and we would expect to find harmony between them. Another area where we see overlap is on the origin of humanity. The Bible has something to say about the origin of humanity, doesn't it? It started with a first pair. They, they, they were created roughly um, after the animals. They were roughly in this certain geographical area. It gives us certain details about the first humans. I go out in God's world and I begin to investigate and I can find out some information about the first humans there. Roughly where the first humans originated, roughly how long, long ago they, they, they originated and that sort of thing. Okay, and we can do wonderful things now with genetics to trace back the, the beginning of humanity. Okay, so... What's interesting is that the, the issue of humanity is a wonderful um, and growing area to probe uh, the overlap or what we might call the integration between God's word and God's world. So this is our basic premise. Is this making sense to you, Melinda, that these things ought to agree? We should be able to probe them separately, but we ought to be able to find harmony. There are some unique topics that we probe separately but they don't contradict there's nothing about the periodic table that is inherently contradictory to to scripture but we can still know it nonetheless okay now and we know things in god's world oftentimes inductively which we'll talk about in a couple weeks what inductive reasoning is but this is just a reasoning that that from uh, multiple lines of evidence, and then it reaches you to a conclusion. And deductive reasoning is more like a math problem, like 2 plus 2 equals 4. It has certain, uh, certain conclusions. Inductive conclusions are probably true conclusions. So there is some area of exploration here, but we know these things. It's reasonable to know that these things are real. Okay. Now, when it comes to issues like hominids. I'm going to put that over here on this side of the ledger because to best of my ability, the Bible has nothing to say about hominids, which are these ape-like creatures that seem to exist before Adam and Eve. Okay, The Bible has nothing to say about that. Does that mean that they never existed? No, because there's an unending number of topics the Bible says nothing about. But we still know that they're real. As I used to tell my daughter <coughs> when, when she was young, if I want to know about Adams, I go look in, in this revelation. If I want to know about Adam, I go look in this revelation. Okay? So just because something isn't on this side of the ledger doesn't mean I can't trust it. It's not true. It's unverified. Are you with me? So the question is, is, what is the line of evidence that these things existed? And this is where inductive reasoning is quite useful because there are multiple lines of evidence when we look out into the fossil record and other places that these creatures are real, that they existed before humans, and that there were multiple species of them and that they were very limited. 
Mostly they existed in Africa, a few in Asia, and Europe. As of right now, we don't have any evidence that hominids ever existed in the Americas, North or South America. Okay? Now, we know these things by the fact that there are many, many uh, bone fragments that have been found. Most of them are jaws and teeth and skull fragments. There are a few um, leg and arm fragments, but those are more rare. And they have been studied, and as they've extracted DNA from them, they see that they are different species than human beings. So it's not like, well, these are just misidentified human bones. These are another species that have been identified genetically. Are you with me? And, and they have different levels of technology that they're associated with. So somewhere around five million years ago, this is funny, a theologian is explaining paleoanthropology. So, but I'm going to ex- do the things that are the most well verified and then you can go look. But about five million years ago, we start seeing these creatures uh, populating Africa, uh, mostly in East Africa, some in South Africa. And this continues, various species, down to about 70,000 years ago. A few examples. If, if any of you ever heard of the specimen of Lucy? Yes. Lucy is in every high school biology textbook. Uh, she's called, she's, her, her official scientific name is um, Australopithecus africanus. And she's part of, we are part of the homo group. She is part of the Australopithecine group. So she is a totally different species than we are and completely different on a different genus than we are. Another famous example are Neanderthals. They lived in Europe, um, mostly in Germany and France. And they're more about like 150,000 years ago to about 70,000 years ago. And these are just two, but there's, there's a lot. There's several different species of these hominid creatures. Now, the question of whether or not these creatures existed, I think, is pretty well established and verified. The question is, is what, if any, connection they have to us? Our, our designation our official scientific designation is Homo, Homo sapien. Uh, my spelling is bad. Homo sapien, sapien. There are other creatures that are Homo sapien something else, but we are Homo sapien sapien, and we take the position at reasons to believe is that all Homo sapien sapiens are the descendants of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were the first Homo sapiens sapien, okay? So when we look at these creatures genetically, there are distinctive differences between us as Homo sapiens sapiens and these other creatures. And these things, if you've ever heard of the Human Genome Project that was big maybe about 10 or 15 years ago, where they were sequencing the whole 
human genome. Well, they've now done that for some of these other creatures. In fact, there's the Neanderthal Genome Project and, and other genome projects. So these things are being rigorously studied. This isn't some, like, kind of haphazard guess over here in the corner. These are things that whole teams of researchers are looking, looking at. So the question is, is what is their relationship to us? Now, if you take a, a perspective from evolutionary biology, they would say that, well, what happened is that you had this Lucy creature back here, and then she gave rise to some other creature, and then that person or that hominid gave rise to another creature, and then we eventually ended up with Homo sapiens sapiens. This is the general, I'm being very crude about it, but this is the general framework of this idea. Now, the problem with this is that when you get, not in the high school textbooks, not in the college textbooks, but when you get to the graduate level, you start seeing that there's all kinds of problems and there's no straight line here. And it's a tree without connections. So there's two different ways of thinking about this. So when you're talking to people in your oikos about things about, you know, whether science is reliable or whether Christians are against science, that's a perception that many people have about us. You can affirm to them, like, no, hey, look, I think that there's a lot of things that we can know. And, and it's completely compatible with Christianity to want to go explore the world. Part of what it means to be created in the image of God, I actually think is that God has made us curious beings. And he's created us to go out and look into the world and to explore these things. So there's no harm, there's no fear, there's nothing to worry about in going to look at these things. Now, when we ask the deeper questions of, well, you know, what does this mean for us and are we related to these creatures? That's, those are interesting questions that we can talk about with people in our oikos, but we don't have to, like, be afraid of. We want to encourage people that it's okay to talk about them. Now, from our perspective, just to wrap this up, um, our perspective at Reasons to Believe is that there's no arrows here. There's nothing that connects these. These are all special creations of God individually. So God loves Homo sapiens, so he made Adam and Eve. And that became his primary creation to to multiply and fill the planet, right? And we are the ones that God came to save. And we're special. We're the only creatures created in his image. But he also made baboons and apes and all kinds of creatures, right? Well, it seems that God created some creatures that we call Neanderthals and some other creatures that we call Australopithecines, that we've named them that, and that they're, but that they're all special creations of God that he created at different times in different moments in the history of Earth. So as far as Cro-Magnon goes, technically Cro-Magnons are Homo sapiens sapiens. They're European Homo sapiens sapiens. They're not hominids. That's a point of frequent confusion. We, and again, this is our perspective at Reasons to Believe, and this is something that Christians can have some differences on. And, and uh, people could, some Christians would take a different view. I'm simply explaining the view that, as I've studied it the last 20 years, to me makes the sense of the most data that's available. 
And there are other theories about who these are, and this is an interesting question that Christians can disagree about and have great animated conversations in love and charity with one another (laughs) about that Um, uh, without name-calling. But this is, I'm I'm just laying it out. Um, my best understanding as I've studied this last 20 years. I think that's a really thoughtful point because this can be very confusing for people that are not experts as to how they do that. And a lot of it depends on how important that bone was. If it's a, if, for example, if it's a heel bone, they can, talk, they can detect a lot from how that creature walked or got around and what their mobility was. And they can kind of guess, not guess, but they can theorize based on what they know about similar creatures with similar heel bones, what their mobility would have looked like. And so then they can kind of extrapolate it from there. Now, there are examples, one in particular, where uh, they took an isolated bone and they, they filled it out. They filled out the whole creature. And then later they found a specimen with more bones. And then it wasn't exactly that. Make some adjustments. But the way that I think about that is that that is a problem of sample size. So what we always want to be careful of is not um, disparaging the scientific process. But to me, that's actually an example of the benefits of the scientific process. When more data is available, then there can be an adjustment and you get closer to truth. And so we want to have as wide of a sample size as we can. And this is another reason why we ought to encourage Christian young people, I think, to go into the profession of science. Because we want them to do more digging. We want them to get more data. We want them to to look into these matters even more. And wouldn't it be great if Christians were part of that conversation rather than just only just abdicating science to the realm of secularism and then we're not part of the conversation anymore. That's a great question. So a great thoughtful question to ask when someone in your oikos brings up a scientific issue that you're not familiar with is to say, you know, I've never heard of this before. Do you know anything about the, the data, like how much data they're using to know this? Like what's the sample size? Because there are some things in science, like, for example, the periodic table. They've been rigorously and studied by, by scientists all over the world for decades. And, and confirmed in interesting ways. But there's other areas of science that are what I call, um, they're in their embryonic stages. That doesn't mean they're invalid. It just means that they're just starting out. In the realm of mo- what's called molecular anthropology, or studying the genetics of hominids is what that is, is a fairly new scientific discipline just within the last 10 or 15 years. It doesn't mean it's no good. It just means it's, it's growing, it's developing. And at one time, every discipline of science had to develop. So I think that when we're in those conversations with our oikos, what we want to, there's going to be a strong pushback by many unbelievers that we are against science. And the more that you can do to let people know, like, hey, I'm all for curiosity. I think that, that science is a noble profession. And in fact, you're, you're looking at the creation that I believe God has made. Let's get in that discussion. Then the more you can project positivity about it and kind of begin to dismantle some of their maybe misguided stereotypes about us, some of them we've actually earned, um, you know, I think that this is, 
this is a, an important posture that we have with unbelievers and, and just knowing about that, not projecting complete negativity. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> a, a critical part of the Big Bang theory is that the universe has a beginning. That's the very first premise of Big Bang cosmology. That's a very biblical idea. That's, that there's nothing in, inherently... Uh, sometimes I think the Big Bang theory is projected by Christians as being like Darwin's kissing cousin, like something to be avoided. But it can actually... There's elements of it that are quite compatible with Christianity. And so if we can take time to, if we have those analytical scientific people in our oikos, this is something that some of them are going to know about as being fairly established fact. And if you come along and say, hey, you know what? I don't have any problem with that. That's completely compatible with, with what God's word teaches me about the universe. Well, then that could maybe stimulate an interesting conversation between the two of you. Like I said earlier, all right, so... Mrs. Gady is bringing up a slightly different question. Um, that uh, what do you do with Christians who see it differently? Remember, I said earlier, I'm explaining to you this is how I've worked it out as a theologian and a Bible scholar in the last 20 years, working with scientists and wrestling through a lot of those things. Now, there are Christians who are going to take a different point of view that. Um, The only way to understand the natural world is like this. I have to see the Bible as a lens through which I see the natural world. And I only know what's in the Bible. And the Bible is my primary lens, and that's their word, of how you see the world. And so they take a much more um, skeptical point of view when it comes to what unbelievers can know about the natural world. I take a little bit less of a skeptical point of view. Um, I think that God has set up the creation, like it says in Psalm 19, um, the heavens declare the glory of God. So there's something about the natural world that the unbeliever can apprehend and know. And it says in Romans chapter 1 that, God's eternal qualities, his divine nature, are clearly seen by the unbeliever. So for to me, the way I understand that, to be clearly seen is to not require scripture. This is why they're unbelievers. So I think that unbelievers can can peer into this side of the revelation. We call this in theology general revelation. And it's available to all people in all times and all places. God has revealed himself through creation. And in in theology terms, we call this general revelation. And this is special revelation. Okay? Unbelievers can peer into this revelation, in my point of view. Now, some Christians would take a different point of view. And they would say, no, what you need to do is have this lens. And what they mean by this is that you have to take a very particular um, interpretation of Scripture about the age of the earth and being about six to 10,000 years old. Um, and they would say, unless you use that, then as your lens to study the natural world, you have a distorted view of the natural world. So when I'm talking to people, Mrs. Gady, this is exactly what I tell them. I've given this talk in an extended form 
in churches all over the country. And this is just, I explained this from scripture from Psalm 19. The first six verses are about general revelation. The last six verses are about special revelation. I think that this is a biblical paradigm. Now, it's not to say theirs isn't a biblical paradigm, but I'm at least saying mine is biblically supported. And we can have a conversation about which is more biblically supported or which has historical precedent. But um, I think that that point of view um, is something that is an in-house debate among Christians that we need to be really careful when we're talking to unbelievers about how we characterize each other. One of the reasons why I like historical theology and one of the reasons I like to study church history is that on questions like these that are controversial in the church today, we can see how the church dealt with them in the past. And it helps us get out of our little kind of 21st century American mindset of this is what the Bible demands that we think about. And when I look at the, the historical uh, writings of the early Christians, the, their reflections on these matters um, don't, don't come down on that hard of an interpretation that way. This is a very, how can I say this diplomatically? Um, that, is a, that is a paradigm that came out, has only been around since the 60s. And so I think that the, there is a sense in which, historically speaking, we ha- if I was to be in that camp, I would have to make the case that, well, how, given that the historic Christianity has never seen the Bible that way until the 1960s, were all of those Christians that ever came before, were they all in error on this issue? Or what? And it just hasn't been part of our history as Christians to only interpret the Bible that way.